1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to continue our study in uh, the epistle of 1 John. Um, as we're going to be looking at verses 26 and 27 today. You know, in 1946, two handsome, fiery evangelists went across Europe, went across North America preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the fiery evangelists had the ability to really move crowds. He was said of him that he was a dynamic preacher. He preached the word of God with emphasis, and he preached the word of God with force. And many, many, many would respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it, thought that, it was thought that this preacher was going to move mountains for the kingdom of God. And he was going to become a household name. And the name of this preacher was Charles Templeton. And he preached with another preacher, a skinny, lanky southerner from North Carolina, whose name we all know as Billy Graham. And the two went out and did crusades for youth for Christ. And there were big moves of God that occurred. Well, tempered. Charles Templeton would later go to Princeton University, particular Princeton Theological Seminary. And after his first year, he confided in Billy Graham that he no longer believed the scriptures to be the inspired word of God. He had come to doubt the biblical account of creation. He had come to doubt salvation. He had even come to doubt the existence of God. Billy Graham, his friend, was taken back by it. And it caused a bit of a crisis in Billy Graham's life. Billy Graham fasted and took time alone in the woods with the Lord with an open Bible. And Billy Graham finally prayed. He said, Father, is this really your word? And Billy Graham said, by faith, I accepted that the word of God was indeed the inspired word of God, the living word of God. Charles Templeton would go on to leave the faith. Charles Templeton, in his famous book, wrote a book called Farewell to Faith, where he basically resigned himself that there was no God, that Christ was a mere man, that the Word of God was not divinely inspired. But many, many, many years later, prior to his death, Lee Strobel, who some of you may know from A Case for Christ, went and interviewed Charles Templeton. He was in his 80s. He was experiencing some of the symptoms of dementia, but still had coherency. And Lee Strobel asked him if he missed Jesus. So did you ever miss Jesus? Did you, did you ever miss him? And Templeton went on to say he was the greatest human being who ever lived. He was the model of perfection. And then through teary eyes, Charles Templeton said, I miss him so. Upon his death, 
he who had abandoned the faith years earlier, finally met the Lord he denied, but he met him in Hades. What's the moral of this story? Although Charles Templeton had the outward appearance as a man of God, inwardly it was not conceived of faith. And when the worries of the world came up and the challenges of the world came up and the pressures of the world came up, he fell away from the faith because he had no root. Believers in Christ have root and that root is Christ himself. He is the one that holds the believer in the faith. Believers in Christ abide in Christ. And we're going to look at that today. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Believers remain in Christ. Believers persevere in Christ. I've entitled this message, Knowing Truth in an Age of Lies. Knowing Truth in an Age of Lies. And we're going to look at 1 John verses chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. And we're going to find that John teaches the very point that believers abide and they persevere in Christ. God has equipped believers to know and understand truth. And this truth, which is done by the working of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the church, and this model has not changed since the church was birthed. As such, believers in Christ can know the truth of God, the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel, even in an age of lies. We're going to see in the text today what God has done to cause the believer to abide in Christ. In our text, John gives us three facts pertaining to persevering and abiding in Christ. He says God does so through, number one, God uses the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that. Number two, he says God uses the teaching ministry of the church. And number three, God uses the Word of God. So let's look at our text. 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 In 27, I'll read it through and then we'll go through the text. In verse 26, he says, These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need of anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, just a little bit of background to the text, right? The biblical context of 1 John 2, 18 through 27 is that believers are to continue to abide in Christ. In verse 18 to 19, John tells of those who have fallen away from the faith. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, They would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. 
In verses 20 to 27, John reminds the churches what these false teachers look like and what their goals are and what those who hold to the true gospel look like. And as we will see in today's text, verses 26 through 27, John shares what it means to abide in Christ. Now, the most amazing thing, I've shared this with you time and time again, is that there was a new doctrine that was entering or a false doctrine that was pressing upon the church. That doctrine was Gnosticism. Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And Gnosticism was a false teaching that said that Christ could not have been a man. Christ could have never went to the cross. Christ could have never have died. And in order to know God, you have to have this secret, transcendent knowledge in order to know God. This was threatening the church itself because it was denying the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It was denying the humanity of Jesus Christ. And it was denying the deity of Jesus Christ. And so John is writing to the churches not only merely to warn them, but to anchor them in the word of God. And look at verse 26, where John writes, these things I have written you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And he's, he's calling these false teachers that they're deceptive that they have a very specific purpose. And the main thrust here is false teachers attempt to seduce or deceive people into believing error. Listen, that is intentional. That is deliberate. That is their stated goal. They want people to fall away from the faith. So they seduce. And if you think of seduction, seduction is done very subtly where they begin to introduce arguments that are contrary to the word of God. Perhaps some of those arguments sound really good to the world. Perhaps they sound really good to people who are not in Christ. But they begin to insert, they begin to seduce, they begin to deceive people. And John writes with an emphasis for them not to fall to this error. Why? because they already had been given the truth. See, false teachers seek to cause others to go astray. And here in 1 John, he gives us some characteristics of false teachers. As I previously read in verse 19, one of the things he says of false teachers is they come out of the church. Look at verse 19. They went out from us. They went out from the church. But he makes a statement but they were really not of us. And what he says is by virtue of the fact that they leave the church, that they leave behind the truth is evidence that they are not of Christ. So one of the characteristics are, is that they come out of the church but are not of Christ. Another characteristic, false teachers deny that Jesus is Christ. They deny the atoning work of salvation. They deny the deity of Christ. He says this here in verse 21. He says, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, 
he says, but I have, um, but because you know it and because no lie is in the truth. Who is a liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist and the one who denies the Father and the Son. Gnosticism sought to do just that. Christ's atoning death was insufficient. Christ could have never have paid the penalty for sin. All matter they taught, all physical matter was inherently evil. Therefore, Christ could not become a man. Therefore, Christ could not atone. There has to be a different way of atonement. And so they advocated this super-duper spiritual experience. The third characteristic he identifies of false teachers is their denial of Christ is evidence that they are not of Christ, as I read to you in verse 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. No matter how good, and this is an important thing to remember, no matter how good false teachers may sound, and I've heard some of them who sound great, they have really good logic and they have linear logic, And from a human perspective, you can go, wow, what a good argument they make. But our faith is not of human logic. It's of the word of God. And no matter how good they may sound, no matter how sincere they may appear, we're not saved by sincerity. No matter how moral they may look on the outside, their teaching is spiritually Deadly. It is a deadly mix that brings death to the soul. Listen, when you read through 1 John chapter 2, this is the thrust that John is preaching. No truth, no Christ, no the gospel. This is it. And in a day and age of today, in a day filled with lies, Filled with heresies, it is even more critical that believers in Christ are rooted and grounded in Christ and rooted and grounded in his truth. Look at verse 27. John continues, And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. There's some very obvious questions here. First of all, does this mean that there's no need for pastors and teachers and discipleship in the church, that everybody's going to run around, you know, going to be guided by the Holy Spirit by themselves? No need for studying the scriptures, for prayer, for fellowship in the church? And what did John mean exactly regarding the anointing and what the anointing teaches? Of this passage, Matthew Henry wrote this. True Christians have an inward confirmation of the divine truth that they have been, that have been imbibed. The Holy Spirit imprinted it on their minds and hearts. It is 
uh, it is meet that the Lord Jesus should have a constant witness in the hearts of disciples. The unction, the outpouring of the gifts of grace upon sincere disciples is a seal to the truth and the doctrine of Christ since none giveth that seal but God. Put it in more modern English, the Holy Spirit bears witness of Christ. And the believer in Christ can have that confidence through the indwelling Holy Spirit. In this verse of chapter, uh, verse 27, there are three key words we need to look at at this verse to understand its context and the context to this chapter. And they are, number one, anointing. What is the anointing? This word anointing refers directly to the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches. The second word is abide. What does abide mean? It means to remain, to remain in. When you see abide in the scriptures, it means to perpetually reside within Christ. It's someone that's immovable. And the third one is teach. And this word means refers always to teaching the scriptures. That's it, to teach the scriptures. Look, we see this in John 14, 26. Turn there in your Bibles to John 14, 26. I want to show you this right here. John 14, 26. These are the words of Jesus. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said. What's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit teaches all that Christ has taught. The Holy Spirit edifies, he ministers to the believer. How does he do that? Not by some secretive thing, but through the word of God. All Jesus said, all the things that I have taught you. Well, we have the teachings of Christ here recorded in the Holy Scriptures, which is why it is imperative that we study the Scriptures. I, I, I sometimes hear people say, you got to read the Bible. Well, you got to do more than read the Bible. You have to study the Word of God. You have to meditate upon the Word of God. You have to store the Word of God in your heart so that in times of trouble, in times of conflict, it is not human logic that you will defer to. It is the very Word of God. Go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. John writes this, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Why don't they have need of anyone to teach them? Because they had already been taught the gospel. If John is writing to this church, and he's writing here, you have no need of anybody to teach you. What he's talking about here is new revelation. God has already taught them through the gospel, through the apostles, 
through the other spiritual teachers at the time. They were taught the gospel, 2 Peter 1, 20, 21. You don't have to turn there. It says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. You hear that? No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But what? But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is a first century church. They didn't have the full revelation of the gospel if we have today, but they had the words spoken by men filled with the Holy Spirit who gave instruction. God validated the truths of these men and he validated it in their changed lives. What would people have thought of Paul if Paul made a meager profession of faith but still went around arresting and beating and throwing into prison people who believed that faith? You'd say that that is not genuine. But God took a man like Paul and he changed him and he sanctified him through the power of the gospel. And that sanctification and that change gave evidence to the true work of Jesus Christ. Look at the disciples of Jesus. He took Matthew, a tax gatherer, a publican. Do you realize that a tax gatherer, a publican, was more contemptible than a prostitute? And God took this man and he changed them and he gave him a new life in Christ. How true is the scripture? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All of the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. What about Peter? Foot and mouth disease Peter. A man that had so much confidence in himself and so little faith in God. A man who had failed Jesus. You know, two people betrayed Jesus, you know, right? Judas and Peter. One repented. The other one never repented. And the one that repented of what we might think may be one of the worst things you can do, but to deny Jesus Christ stands up on Pentecost full of the Holy Spirit and preaches the gospel of Christ and thousands upon thousands are saved. You know, here's an application for us today. We live in a world of constant change and most of it is not good. Our world is changing right before our faces. We have redefined marriage. We have redefined the family. We have redefined gender. We have redefined just about every institution. Let me give you a little clue. Most sin, most sin, almost all sin, okay, is a rejection of God's creative order. Let me say that again. Sin is a rejection of God's creative order. When God says the family is a a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, and children come from that, the world says, no, that's not good enough for me. I'm going to redefine it. That's what we've done. When God says that I knew you in the womb, I knew you before you were even formed in the womb, and that that constitutes life, 
given by God. And the world says, no, I'll do with that what I please. By the way, has it ever, is it me or, or are you noticing the indignation of our nation over the fact that they cannot kill? Indignation over the fact that they could not kill. The same thing is with gender. God says, I created them male and female. Male and female. But when the person says, no, I'm not that way, God, you're not going to make me that way. I'm this way and change it. It's a rejection of the creative order. Listen, we don't have to be upset by this. This is the whole thing I want to be able to make clear here. The church, I want, I, I want this to be crystal clear. The church, I don't think there's ever been an organization on the planet, not on the planet, that there have been more concentrated efforts to wipe out than the church of Jesus Christ. Man, they started doing it right after the resurrection. And 2,000 years later, the church is here. Now, is the church perfect? No. Matter of fact, the church in this nation needs to repent of a lot. And most Christians, to be perfectly honest with you, need to repent. But I want to share something with you. The church will be here until he comes. A beautiful day is coming when the eastern sky is going to split. There's going to be a shout of the archangel. There's going to be a trumpet blast. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we which remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord to be in the air. And thus we shall ever be forevermore. The church isn't going anywhere. Everybody could reject it. Everybody could say it doesn't exist. Everybody could say it's a fairy tale. But let me share something to you. The church will be here because God's word is indeed true. Amen. Also, in the religious world, we're having many, many, many false doctrines that are emerging, heresies that they're calling truth today. We do not have to fear as long as we hold to the word of God. And the Holy Spirit, the church, and the word of God, listen, they all work together. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit, the church, and the Word of God all work together for the maturity of the believer in Christ. Omit any one of them, and you'll have considerable lack of growth and spiritual wisdom and spiritual discernment. Listen, as believers, we're not designed to be cloistered people. We're not designed to be people that are free agents. We live by ourselves. As believers in Christ, we have come in together into the community of the church to build each other up in the faith. That's what God has ordained. 
And whatever spiritual gift, if you are a believer in Christ, whatever spiritual gift that God has given you, it needs to be used in the church. That's where your gifts are to be used for. So getting back to the text, I want to show you three principles. Number one, God uses the indwelling Holy Spirit. Verse 20, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. Here in verse 27, John speaks of the anointing which you have received from him. This is unmistakably the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the person of the Holy Spirit, another gift of grace by God. And he indwells all who are redeemed of God and he abides permanently resides within the believer listen the scripture tells us that the holy spirit does the following he gifts teaches convicts of sin empowers sanctifies or conforms the believer in holiness and brings to remembrance the believe to the believer the words of Christ this is what we mean when we refer to it as sanctification the setting apart of the believer unto Christ. Listen, if you are in Christ, you have been set apart to him. Your first loyalties are to Christ. Your first loyalties are to God. He has created in you a vessel of honor to bear his witness to the world. John 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus made this statement. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose it to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. Praise God that we have the Holy Spirit to guide us. Romans 8, 11, Paul wrote this. He said, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, what will he do? He will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which indwells you. God uses the Holy Spirit, and we see this here in verse 7. And the Spirit abides in the believer, and it teaches the believer, and it bears witness of Christ, and it teaches the believer. And John states that the believer, what? Ought to abide in him. Notice that reciprocal relationship. The Holy Spirit abides in us, but we are to abide in him. The second principle, God uses the church. Prayer, study, meditation, contemplation of the word of God, being in fellowship and laboring in the body of Christ, the church. As the Holy Spirit teaches us concerning Christ, one thing that the Holy Spirit will teach and lead the believer in is the ministry of the local church. For God has placed the church not on radio, not on the web, not on TV, not on YouTube. But God has given teachers of the word of God gifted to preach and teach the word of God. Paul affirmed this in his great epistle to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 4 verse uh, 11 He gave some as apostles, 
some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What is the ministry of the church? I want to make a point here. The ministry of the church is not being passive. What's passive? Hey, I go and I come and I leave. The ministry of the church is active, equipping one another for the building up of the body. God's vehicle for helping believers know truth and the word of God is the church. And God uses pastors, teachers, evangelists for the equipping of the saints. It is the church that is designed for this task. It is the church that preaches a biblical and a historic Christianity that God uses for the building up of the saints. Listen, I want to add a personal note here. When I call somebody, I say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while, or I haven't seen you in church. It's not because we're looking for something here. It's not like you get paid per person. It's because we want to see you grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ. We want to see you take whatever spiritual gifts that God has given them and employ them in the service of the local church. It is for you to receive blessing, for you to receive maturity in the things of God. Yes, God uses the Holy Spirit, and yes, God uses the church. I want to share with you one other principle here found in verse 27. God calls believers to abide slash persevere for the things of Christ. Look at the second half of verse 27. Well, let's again look at verse 27. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. There is the Holy Spirit abiding in the believer. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. These were mature Christians, right? But his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. I had mentioned to you that the church is... Is to be a part of a church is not being passive, but it's being active. To be a believer in Christ is about being active and not dormant. We as believers in Christ need to serve. We need to serve the Lord. We need to serve the church. We need to serve our community. We need to serve those outside. Believers are called to abide, to perpetually remain in Christ. And this means that we are called to remain in the teaching which we have heard. We are to persevere in Christ. Now is another time in history where the very tenets of the Christian faith are being tried. 
And those of us that are in Christ need to persevere in Christ. To persevere implies that we're going to be tried. We're going to be challenged. But we are to remain steadfast. And the beauty of persevering in Christ is that true believers will, all capital, will persevere in Christ. And here's the reason why. Because they belong to Christ. Speaking of this perseverance, the 1689 London Baptist Confession states this. Those whom God has accepted in the beloved, meaning in the body of Christ, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace, but shall certainly persevere there into the end and be eternally saved seeing the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, from which source he still begets and nourishes them in faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit. Let me break it down into modern English. If you have been born again, if you have been saved, it is Christ who holds you. It is Christ who gives you the ability to persevere because he holds you. Why? Because Christ's calling is without repentance. It's never changing. The eternal security of the believer. Yes, we labor to remain in Christ. When I say we labor to remain in Christ, we talk about confession of sin, repentance of sin, going back over and over again, seeking the Lord in prayer and study and meditation of the word of God. That's active Christianity. That's persevering and laboring in the faith. But Christ freely and graciously holds his children in him. As Romans eleven twenty nine so succinctly states, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, or as the King James says, without repentance. Now, let me give a warning regarding this, too, because everybody likes the, hey, I'll never lose my salvation thing. But let me give you a warning. This does not imply, neither does it infer, that it is your profession that saves you. Charles Templeton, remember him at the beginning of the message? Charles Templeton made a profession of faith. Charles Templeton denied Christ. Charles Templeton denied the gospel, the word of God, and even the existence of God himself. Charles Templeton did not abide in Christ. Rather, He abandoned the faith. And it could be said of Charles Templeton that his abandoning of the faith is evidenced that he never was in the faith. Just like the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.19 that they went out from us, but they were never really of us. 
They would have remained with us if they were, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. Simply put, their abandonment of faith, false teachers, their abandonment of faith is indicative that they were never of the faith. So it is with those who at some portion in their life may have professed Christ. If that wasn't the case, then Jesus would have never said in Matthew 7, you call me Lord, Lord, I never knew you. So today we've seen the following. God uses the indwelling Holy Spirit to cause believers to abide in Christ. God uses the church and the pastors and the teachers and evangelists to cause believers to abide in Christ. God calls the believer to abide or persevere in him. And the glory of all of this is that true believers will remain in Christ, as John stated in this portion of Scripture. So why is this important? That's the logical question. What does this have to do with me? In a day of ever-changing morals and standards, in a day where people are declaring that we cannot know absolute truth, that's what the world is saying, believers in Christ can have confidence in the very Word of God. Confidence in the Word of God. In the gospel that has been handed down for generations and in a church that preaches, teaches the very word of God, unaltered, contextually, word word for word, verse by verse, God's word is true. The testimony of Christ is true. Believers in Christ do not have to run here and there for the latest new fad that's emerging in theology. We can anchor ourselves to the Word of God and we can hold ourselves in the Word of God while Christ holds us. We can rest our faith upon the Word no matter what the world might say. And so what's the call to action? The question becomes, do you know that truth? Do you have that confidence? Listen, our goal here at Calvary is to proclaim the life-changing, soul-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our ministry. That's why our verse is Colossians 1.28. And we proclaim him, admonishing. We admonish, we warn, we exhort admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's what we seek to do. We want to give you the word, and we want to give you the word in overabundance. You know my whole thing, right? We're a church that has nothing, but the one thing we do have is the word of God, and that we're going to give you. We're going to give you that in overabundance. Why? So we can hear ourselves speak? No, so that we would be complete in Christ. You know what my terror is? You know the terror of the ministry? Here's the terror of the ministry. That I personally will give an account to God to my fidelity 
to the word of God. God is going to examine me. He's going to examine my works. He's going to examine everything. And he's going to say, were you faithful to the gospel? Were you faithful to the word of God? Did you strive and did you labor to make the word of God clear? Were you striving and laboring so that people would know that there is salvation in Christ and in Christ alone? That's the day future day of judgment for me by the very living, holy, righteous God. And I'll tell you, every time I think about that, I think about all the times I blew it. All the times I wasn't clear. All the times I didn't say what I should have said because of fear or ridicule. And let me tell you something. Done it. Done it. How many times did I do that? How many times did I fail? And to know that I'm going to give an account to the Lord on that day for that word. That's terror. Now look, I have the confidence knowing that I'm not going to, he's not going to turn me away because I'm saved, because he gave his son for me. But I still have to answer. Well, here's a bulletin. So does everyone else. You faithful to the word of God? Here's one. Are you faithful to Christ? If you call yourself a believer, if you call yourself that you have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, are you faithful to that calling? Do you walk in holiness or strive to walk in holiness? Do you pray? I'm not talking about now I lay me down to sleep. I pray to Lord my soul to keep. That's not what I'm talking about. But to meet God in prayer. To meet God in the scriptures. To desire God. To want more of God. To to repent of the known sins in your life and to press into Christ for forgiveness and to ask God for the filling of the Holy Spirit and to move God and say, Lord, how can you use me in this life? Do you use that salvation to serve others? Do you see a need and do you respond to the need? Or do you just say, somebody else is going to do that, I'm good. That's the question. And like I do every Sunday, I call anyone here to flee to Christ and find forgiveness of sin, new life in Him and Him alone. As Zach says, For there is neither salvation in any other. Listen, there's no other way. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. If you're not saved today, will you give your heart? Will you give your soul? Will you cry out to God and say, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner, and be saved?
Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you as we gather here this morning, Lord. We pray that the Word of God, that the Word of God would speak to our hearts. Lord, I prayed originally that we would leave this place changed. Lord, that, that cannot happen by how hard or any special technique to use in preaching. It cannot happen by my words. That can only happen by the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, you search the hearts of people. And Father, we pray that as you do, that you would summon to salvation those whose names are written down in the Lamb's book of life, and that you would bring conviction that only the Holy Spirit can bring, and that you would call men and women to yourself. Father, we bless you. Father, we thank you. Father, we exalt your blessed name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.